0: I'm Dr. Jenny Bristow. I'm a reader in sociology at Canterbury Christchurch University, and I'm a sociologist of generations. Could you tell me a little bit about what that means? What's a, what's the sociology of generations?
1: Why does it matter?
0: The sociology of generations is, um, as I tend to employ it, uh, it's a very kind of contested kind of area, and people go at it in different ways. But to me, it's a way of, of kind of looking at um, history in an embodied form
2: concepts of existence greek origins of generational thought by laura l nash 1978 what marks a generation when the term categorizes a group of people unrelated by blood the critical criteria defining a generation are endlessly variable from the nearly meaningless numerical division by decades the sixties generation for example to the mutual participation in a specific event as profound as Vietnam or as trivial as drinking Pepsi Cola. Age itself may mark a generation, with specific physical characteristics, gray beard and stooped posture, or behavioral patterns, as in Gibbon's brisk intemperance of youth, providing the definitive signals. But our most secure standard for defining a generation rests on the Greek root of the word hyanos, Whose basic meaning is reflected in the verb yeneste, to come into existence. Until 1961, the first definition of the word in Webster's unabridged dictionary was still procreation. That moment when a child is born simultaneously produces a new generation separating parent and offspring, gonos ergo yenos, and the very concept educes the paradox of an ever shifting threshold in time
0: concepts of existence, which I think is a very nice way of putting it. It's about how we make meaning of our um, ourselves in relation to the historical period in which we live. So um, sociologists, most famously Karl Mannheim, writing in the 1920s, and then subsequently have used the concept in a number of ways, but largely to try and explain how um, cohorts born at certain times then, kind of take on in early adulthood and shape the the zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the age. Uh, so it's about that re- that that temporal relationship that we have with our societies.
1: That I've noticed um, in some of the work that I've done looking at social policy or, or policy, at, particularly at the European level, is the way that this transfer of culture and so on from one generation to the next that you're talking about tends to be seen, tends to be problematized, tends to be seen as a problem by mm-hmm. a lot of parties that, that you know, it's very difficult to make change in the world because all these bad old ideas get passed down in families, right? So the older, yeah. you know, you this all the time, okay, boomer, you know, <laughs> like all these bad ideas make their way. If we don't intervene, they're going to infect the next generation. And it's the sense that like no one ever changes their mind you have to get the ideas in there at an early age. So we, we need to intervene in schools and so on to get the right progressive things into the culture. Um, except everyone changes their mind when exposed to bad ideas I don't like. So there's a bit of a, <laughs> <laughs> bit of a contradiction there. But so there's this problematization.
0: Do you see that as well? I do. And I think it's become um, very um, significant in the contemporary period. Um, I think if you look at, uh, the generational transaction properly and the way it's tended to work historically, it is essentially about the relationship between the past, the present, and the future. And so um, if you take, say, Mannheim's theory of generations, it's like the seminal essay on the problem of generations, it was called. Um, what he was concerned with in the first instance was how um, the emergence, the continual emergence of new participants in, in society Um is a way of kind of both passing down the cultural heritage of that society, but also rejuvenating it, renewing it. Okay, so that whole um, relationship with the past, primarily through families, actually, um, but also through um, institutions of secondary socialisation, such as schools, um, is, is centrally important. So young people don't just absorb... The ideas of older generations. They come across them and they make them their own and this is what gives knowledge its dynamic character. I think what, what's kind of happened over the past I suppose three decades um, in a number of arenas but particularly education and parenting culture is that um, there's been a kind of fear of that spontaneous generational transaction in the way that you described this idea that actually that kind of relationship between the past and the present through uh, close and intimate bonds doesn't um, achieve the objections of the present. Okay, so there's been an attempt to insert present day considerations into the, uh, the transfer of knowledge at that very basic level. Uh, which really is very, very disruptive because what it does is um, it it kind of well, it threatens to wipe out the wisdom of everything that we've known by the um, the the force of kind of very, very present day, often fleeting, actually um, kind of emergencies that are seen as as important.
1: This can sound a bit hyperbolic, like oh gosh, you know, this is it sounds very conservative, you know, that the all of our knowledge to be wiped out by these newcomers with their big ideas and (laughs) so on um can you give me an example of of what you mean by this
0: um gosh well I mean there are there are several I think um one one good example comes from the the arena of parenting culture where um there's a sort of you know the kind of classic idea of how you raise children is that you rely on your own experience of being a child and you rely on your experience of your mother and your grandmother um, to take on board that responsibility for bringing your own child up and you know educating and socializing them in the way that happens within the family um and throughout history when we see this in in social scientific literature but also in novels films whatever um personal experience right every new parent doesn't set out to say right I'm going to raise my child exactly the way I was raised often they say the opposite they say I'm going to do something different I didn't like that I'm going to be a different kind of parent you know you work on the experience this is what I mean about every generation making um making the knowledge of the past into their own really and having agency in that process the big kind of problem with parenting culture in its kind of newer form is that it sort of sees that process as problematic as well because it says well actually what 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 parents should be doing is listening to experts you know people who are have got a kind of a universalizing view of the best way to raise a child so you shouldn't rely on parents being able to use their own knowledge and experience and the reactions to that in terms of informing how they bring up their babies. Um, you should get them to read the latest books and blogs and go to parenting classes, obey all of the kind of yeah you know, the norms of the twenty first century parent, and do that. And that's kind of what I mean in relation to the conservative aspect of it. You see, I think that the old way that I described, I don't think that. I wouldn't say that is conservative, actually, because it appreciates that knowledge is dynamic.
2: Ideology and Superstructure in Historical Materialism by Franz Jakubowski first published 1936, page 60. The relation between consciousness and being can thus only be correctly understood if being is conceived of dynamically as process. It then loses its rigidly objective form, Individual things on the surface of social being are removed from their isolation and seen as processes within the framework of the social totality. When the great basic principle of the dialectic is applied, the world is not seen as a complex of achieved things but as a complex of processes. Social reality, in its historical flux, is shown to be human reality, that is, the totality of human relations rather than a relation between things. Consciousness no longer stands outside being, and is no longer separated from its object. It is a moving, and moved part of the historical becoming of reality. Consciousness is determined by the transformation of being, but, as the consciousness of acting men, it in turn transforms this being. Consciousness is the self-knowledge of reality, an expression, and a part, of the historical process of being which knows itself at every stage of development.
0: That, you know, younger generations in taking things on board and then transmitting them to their own children or the children they teach um, are, you know, they're, they're not kind of just funnels from the past into the the present or the future, you know, in that way. Um, they are very much actively... Making that knowledge, so I think that is dynamic, and I think the the problem, a lot of the problem with the kind of um, very presentist mindset that seeks to replace that experience with a a kind of devotion to expert advice um, that's very much constructed around the imperatives of the now. Um, I think that the problem with that is that it, it's very very uh, rigid. It's actually, I mean, I wouldn't say that's conservative either. But it doesn't allow for the dynamism of knowledge and experience in the way that properly that would operate. Tell me, so you mentioned this term parenting culture a couple of times. What exactly
1: does that mean? So I've talked about this. I've, I've tried to sort of get across like, no, parenting culture dictates blah, blah, blah. And people are like, what do you want about it? <laughs> <So> <laughs> what, what exactly do you
0: mean by that? Okay, so I'm um Visiting Research Fellow at the, the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies uh, based at the University of Kent, um, which I maybe should have said in the introduction. Yeah. But um, that's been running for sort of over 10 years now. And with colleagues there, we've, we've written a book that we're now kind of um, updating into a second edition, looking at how things have moved in the past 10 years and particularly the experience of the uh, COVID lockdown, uh, for education and, and, and family life. Um, and in the discussion of parenting culture, what, what we're attempting to do is to say, you know, there's always been historically this thing called child rearing. Okay. That's how society, yeah, that's a, a societal project done by individual families, but it was kind of conceptualized as stuff uh, as, as such. Um, What then kind of began to happen in the 70s and became really crystallised in the 1990s in America, Britain, and then has now kind of, you know, sort of bled into Western Europe and um, and, and, and more broadly, was that that project of just kind of raising the next generation became, um, turned into a sort of... um, um, dogmatic imperative, really, um, a very politicized activity that, you know, politicians and policymakers put at front and center of their uh, approach to you know, leading society politically, that um, takes it out of the domain of uh, just what parents do and turns it into a kind of top level normative um, demand, really, that people kind of practice their parenting in a particular kind of way I don't know if that's clear but it's a sort of it's a kind of a a very kind of behavior orientated approach to child rearing um the witch says you know what matters is it doesn't matter who you are but you must for example read to your child for 10 minutes a day otherwise their brains will shrink and they'll go on to commit crime i'm not making this stuff up i mean this is all in the policy documents you know you must uh, breastfeed otherwise your child will be somehow limited for for the rest of their life and this will lead to social problems it's the linking of the kind of individual parenting strategies and people didn't used to talk about parenting strategies, right? This is new. Um, But it's the linking of parenting strategies or behaviours with social problems in that very direct way that has taken it into this kind of domain of um, something that's distinctly parenting culture.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's fairly clear. So just to sort of reiterate, a lot of people will link this to neoliberalism for instance there's this sort of permeation of neoliberal sort of um, uh, goal-oriented thinking where every aspect of your life has to be geared toward key performance indicators Hmm. so all family life becomes this like um these made up of all these processes and all of these behaviors that you have to go through in order to create um, this citizen that's going to be employable <laughs> and if you mess up in any of these areas these social problems or this failure of whatever objective it might be that you're supposed to be living up to it's it's your fault and in this way it kind of deflects attention from you know a broader society with a class structure that's pretty resistant to change and so on and it's like no no what did the parents do and then you know this it becomes this endless search for Solutions to these wicked issues, these these problems that just can't be solved, and it's like, well, okay, you know, the parents messed up. Uh, we have to intervene a little bit earlier. You know, we'll intervene in the first three years. No, when she's pregnant. No, in the woman who can have babies. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it becomes like all women become subject to the surveillance because the, the last solution didn't work. And instead of thinking like, oh, maybe parents are not the root cause of all social problems, <laughs> they think, uh, no, let's do a brain scan. Let's just yes. look at your gene, you know, they go deeper and deeper into these things.
0: I was just going to say, I think that's I think that's true in the way that you describe it. I think there is that kind of neoliberal logic which seeks to de-socialize the project of um raising children. I mean, it's a very, very individualized approach that sees, you know, the minutiae of what individual parents do as being responsible for this host of problems. I don't think it completely explains it, though, the neoliberal critique. I think it captures yeah. part of it. I think there's another aspect of it, which is um, which is broader and kind of more cultural, which is to do with um, uh, the confidence that people have in themselves uh, as you know, kind of, well, I don't want to say masters of their own destiny because we all know that's limited, but as being people who are able to um, kind of, uh, shape their lives, their, their families, uh, that have that confidence and have that autonomy. And this comes, I think, from a wider kind of crisis of um, autonomy, um, which is actually, you know, the left is is quite responsible for a lot of that, you know, that that sort of sees people as incapable of um, making good circumstances for themselves and raising their children outside of, you know, what is often termed support, But it is also surveillance, you know, by the state, by charities, by all kinds of other organizations. So parents are kind of caught in a a trap, really, between the logic of, you know, neoliberal individualism and also this kind of more kind of therapeutic um, idea that left to their own devices, they can't cope. And so it's not really surprising in that situation. They struggle to basically say, no, look, I want to do it like this because this is what I think is important.
1: It seems to me that culture gets the blame for a lot. Like I, mm. you know, I'm constantly referencing like my one paper in this area. But <laughs> you know, I wrote I a paper a few years back um, where I talked about how culture, when when it comes to indigenous communities, is seen as like the the cause that, or loss of culture, seen as the cause of all these issues, which is a really old, outdated idea that one group in society doesn't have culture. And this explains their their social problems. You know, they used to say this about like inner black people in the inner cities and so on before people started to say, well, no, they have a culture. It's just not white middle-class culture or whatever. Um, but culture gets a lot of blame for things across the political spectrum. And I was just at a public debate uh, last week where people were like, oh, you know, the left thinks that by changing cultural values towards valuing multiculturalism and so on and valuing different cultures and Acceptance, all these, and it's going to solve all these problems. And then they respond. So what we need to do is give people cultural pride in being British, <laughs> and there's no shame in that. And I just kept thinking, no, you're doing the same thing. You see, mm-hmm. culture is the root of all problems. Um, I don't know if 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 you see that happening. Is it um, perhaps we're giving culture too much causal power? too much solutive power and this leads us to then look into families and say oh you why don't you just change the way you raise your kids give them better values and then we'll solve all these problems
0: yeah I suppose my response to that would be yes and no um on the one hand I think there is definitely in policy discourse um a, a a kind of naturalisation of economic and social problems, the sense that we can't deal with those. So what we need to look at is the behaviours of parents, for example, or, you know, whether children can speak nicely when they come out of school or, you know, these kind of things which really don't address some of the kind of really key material problems facing families and communities and societies at the moment. So I think... On that level, I would kind of agree on the the problem of the causality of culture. I think it's overblown. On the other side, I think people really underestimate how powerful cultural forces are in terms of how they shape our sense of being, what we prize, what we value, what we feel we can do in society. So if you take, for example, the the generational transaction, if you have a situation where um, parents feel nervous or teachers feel nervous about passing down the cultural heritage of their societies or communities because they're told to think oh that's all outdated and it's really problematic that's the word isn't it it's all a bit problematic we're not like that anymore there's a new way of doing things so they feel nervous about that so they're kind of left in limbo because they you know they they're, they're kind of becoming detached from the the norms and values by which they were raised themselves and that makes them very hesitant in terms of being able to pass on those Values to their their children, and that's part of the reason why, for example, and this has been observed for, um, I mean, a couple of decades now. What you see amongst young people now is a really, really profound moral relativism, which, when confronted with things <laughs> which you know you you as a society or as a, a an individual or a family, you might want to take a view you know, someone's been murdered, there's been a terrorist attack, there's something where you just think there needs to be a, a response to this. You know, there's a sort of flailing around, you know, oh, it's really complicated. Oh, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And this isn't something that young people have come to by their own accord. It's because there, there's been a real kind of hesitancy in transmitting that sense of, you know, right and wrong, for example um good and bad concepts that we know can be contested and that young people have always contested their parents versions of but they have to have something to contest in the first place Mm -hmm. in order to work out their position so I think you know there have been some really important developments um in uh, parenting culture and in education uh, which are really kind of very negative, um, have negative implications for young people, and these are cultural accomplishments. They're not a, a result of material factors. Can you give an example of what you mean by that? Can I talk about the COVID lockdowns? Would that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. So, so this is so one example. Of the difficulty, I think that that arises when we kind of lose our cultural bearings, and we have this hesitancy about the relationship between the past, present, and the future, is what happened during the uh, the COVID lockdowns. Now, I wrote a, quite a lot about this. I was very bothered um, by the policy itself. I thought it was a, a a bad policy, with you know that would be very destructive. But particularly bothered about the implications for young people, uh, partly informed by my research, partly informed by the fact that I've got two teenage daughters and partly informed by the fact that I teach young people. You know, I was um, really struck by how how bad it felt to suddenly be removed from that relationship of teaching uh, young people while they're going through this time of social crisis. It just felt just so completely wrong. And what happened during Covid, I thought was very interesting, because it 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 sort of brought to a head trends that have been developing for a long time, the first of which was a kind of a willingness to suspend everything we knew and everything we thought and everything we valued in the face of a present day emergency. right? And we hear rhetoric about this a lot we hear it yeah, particularly in, in the language of environment yeah the, the climate emergency this idea that oh it's an emergency so we've just got to do this but you know that's often a, a kind of quite a rhetorical level with with covid there was a sort of idea that right um we have this pandemic and rather than kind of look at managing it in the ways that societies has historically managed pandemics and the way that our society has planned to manage it we're going to throw everything out of the window and just do this thing you know just do this just panic right lockdown on the basis of you know what because China did it that was that was kind of right and so that struck me as very alarming but the other thing that struck me as very alarming was what happened to schools because in the co in the course of that sort of what kept being termed an unprecedented emergency and what was a very unprecedented policy, there was a sense that educating our children didn't matter, or in fact socialising our children didn't matter, that just closing schools just meant they'd be bored for a bit, and that was all that would happen. And I thought that really kind of brought into relief how much as a society we have come to doubt the importance of education, you know, and then when people talk about education, they talked about it in that context, they talked about it as kind of accessing the curriculum or they talked about learning loss, you know, and there was this idea that you could just kind of put it online. And as long as kids had access to resources, that was OK. And, and you thought, gosh, we, that, that would not have happened at a time when society had actually got a clear sense of why we need to educate children, what education means um so that's that's kind of one fairly kind of extreme example but I think that the trouble is that since that happened we're going to see lots of smaller examples of exactly this kind of process because we just you know we asked ourselves the question what is education for and we came up with a shrug or or it became you know,
1: we forgot all about secondary socialization and the basics of sociology. And yes. we're like, no, no, it's just about uh, in- curriculum transfer. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> That's it. That's all it's we, about. We want them and- to be
0: independent learners. That's what I remember. Yeah. And you think, yeah, this yeah. is what we try and do with undergraduate students. We try and get them to be independent learners, but we don't just kind of send them to their bedrooms and say, get on with it. And when mm-hmm. you've got children, children being told you need to be independent learners and you think, well, yeah really, where are the grown ups in the room at this point? Mm-hmm. You know? yeah it's it's interesting
1: too it's It's all of the obsession with like process in contemporary life, and yet we throw it out the window a lot of the time, like with maths, for instance, like a lot of people mm-hmm. will figure out after doing the long slog of figuring of learning math, they learn that, oh, you know, they make up all sorts of little games in their head to figure out what fifty five plus forty five means, you know constantly mm-hmm. uh, and and then they teach that directly to students. And they're like, oh, well, you know, adults don't go through this whole process. And then they're like, we'll just teach them that directly. It's like, no, you're able to do that because <laughs> you went through the long slog. Exactly. Of learning exactly. But and another funny thing was that people were panicking constantly for years and years about every little thing being injurious to children's mental health. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, when people were promoting lockdown, they rediscovered resilience. Oh, don't worry. No? Children
0: resilience. <laughs> <be> resilient. <laughs> the irony.
1: So I wanted to go back to something that you said about um, moral relativism mm-hmm. and that a lot, there's a lot of uncertainty around sort of making a strong claim that su- such and such is wrong. This is true in a lot of respects and in a lot of respects it isn't. And I wondered if, um, for instance, like there's this weird coexistence between moral relativism and essentialism or emotional essentialism. And so we've had this where, every, you know, everything's sort of in flux and everything's a spectrum and so on that weirdly produced a kind of essential truth in feeling and emotion, where I think people look for an anchor, right? They look for an anchor somewhere to put down and, and holds firm, right? They need something like that. And when it was taken out of the material world, it, the mm-hmm. anchor was put inside the self. And I think, ironically, that's a real bad place <laughs> for that because the self is so much in flux, right? Um, and, and so this leads to this sort of like weird essentialism where if I say this today, that's the truth. And if I say it to something different tomorrow, then that's the truth. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you if, do you see that happening too. Like, how do you make sense of these sort of contradictions where there's a lot of moral uncertainty that coexists with a lot of moral certainty around other issues?
0: Well, I think that's the problem and, it, and you see it all the time. And, and, and it is very contradictory in a sense. I mean, sometimes I just think I can't make sense of these contradictions right because um yeah you you have for example identity you know how you how you feel because that becomes the only thing that you can have a purchase on now you know i i i feel like this but that's very selectively read you know so you're i mean to take a big controversial topical issue you know if your identity is transgender that's immutable you can't question that whatever if your identity is a woman then shut up. It's that kind of sense. Now, that is difficult enough for older people to manage to navigate. Uh, For younger people, I think it's very confusing because younger people by definition don't have a fixed sense of themselves. They're trying to work themselves out. And so they are often, it seems to me, kind of incited to kind of draw these very, very fixed and binary positions on certain issues whilst being kind of told that they can't really, they shouldn't make any kind of firm claims on a whole range of other things. In part two,
2: we talk about moral uncertainty surrounding the current conflict in Israel and Palestine, historical guilt, and whether or not human beings have more or less power to change the world, for better or worse, than we think. Visit patreon.com dot slash ashley a Browley.